welcome to The Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is joined by Dr. Janine K. Brown. Janine is Professor of New Testament and Director of Online Programs at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. A prolific author and editor, Janine is releasing her second edition of Scripture as Communication, and she's currently writing a commentary on Philippians for the Tyndale New Testament Commentary Series. Thanks for tuning in today. Get ready for this great conversation. Hi, Janine. So great to talk with you. Thanks for joining us on the Alabaster Jar podcast. I'm so glad to be here, Lynn. No, thank My you. My pleasure. Yes. Well, we, we've known each other for a while. Uh, I'm not yeah. going to say how many years because I can't count that high, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a but minute. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah, we both love the New Testament, but we've also uh, been roommates at uh, conferences enough to um, kind of know each other well. And you, you mm-hmm. helped me uh, avoid major disasters in uh, attire you know, (laughs) and then that kind of thing, we, we help each other and then just, uh, you know, debrief and, and Mm -hmm. uh, unplug together in some of these conferences. So it's been fun to know you uh, as a, a real person, as well as a scholar. I hope we get a chance to, to get to know uh, all of you here on the, on the podcast. Well, yeah, it's, it's always good to debrief after sessions and such, and just, yeah, really, being able to process things with you has been invaluable to me. Yes. And I got a chance to share with you, uh, you becoming a grandma about a year and a half ago now, I think yeah. it was, right? And yeah. your grandson has- It's wonderful. Not, yes. Sorry. Yes. No, he, well, I've seen the photos and so I can confirm absolutely <laughs> adorable. And his name is the same as my maiden name. So I feel a special mm-hmm. honor and privilege, you know, that- that I'm connected in that oh, way. So well, yeah, just a lot of fun. But I know you're fun. working on Philippians and I've done some work as well on Philippians. I'm using your work on Philippians. <laughs> I love turning to your story of God commentary on Philippians. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, where uh, what, you, what you've written and I've seen a little bit of it um, already, which is so exciting. Um, but I, when we... Um, when we first met years ago, uh, you, you might have been called a Matthew scholar, really. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into Matthew in a little bit, but let's start with um, with Philippians. As you've been reading through the uh, uh, the material and looking at Paul's letters, other letters, what what has struck you about Philippians? What has really risen to the surface on this epistle of Paul's? Yeah, um, it, it was. It's always interesting what's happening in my brain, in my thinking, in my life while I'm starting a project like Philippians. And I've been working on the revision of scriptures, communication, a book on hermeneutics. So I've been very aware of wanting to sort of place myself hermeneutically as I interpret the letter. Um, and so I do have a little section on the hermeneutics of reading Philippians in the introduction. I have to, I just, I couldn't not. Um, and I and I love your book, by the way, uh, Scripture as Communication. I am so excited that a second edition is coming out. Um, I used the first edition as I taught the um, biblical interpretation and hermeneutics class a, 
for a number of years um, in a former job. And uh, I just, I love that book. So can you tell us a little bit about this hermeneutics section in Philippians? Yes. Um, it's still being formed. I've started to write some of it. Um, what's I thought moving from Matthew, 28 chapters to Philippians, four chapters, was just like a piece of cake. And now this is my first writing in a Pauline letter. I have done um, publishing in First Peter, a journal articles. Um, you know, so I'm I'm comfortable in, in letter and epistle and all that, but I wasn't realizing how, how not befuddling, but how I'd have to really think about how am I going to bring in Paul, more of Paul, all of Paul, how much of Paul, when I'm interpreting Philippians, because in my hermeneutics book, I talk about the concept of the implied author of a book, and that is a really central concept. It's not the only thing we think about in terms of author, but it's a centering kind of concept. And as I was reading Philippians and really trying to stay with the Paul of Philippians uh, and then coming to various issues where lots of commentators are going to other Pauline letters, rightly so, for lexical work, for thinking about Paul deals with themes. It just struck me. I really needed to be thinking carefully about how I, how I look at what we might call the empirical Paul or, you know, Paul, as we know him through all of his letters. And then you have those questions of 7, 10, and 13, and, you know, how many letters are Pauline. Um, I was really helped by Bachmiel's commentary because he has a little section on reading Philippians. And he talks about the icon of Paul that we bring with us to any reading of any Pauline letter. And so I just really want to interact with that idea that I bring already a view of Paul, and but I'm trying to hear Philippians on its own terms and realize realizing that um, historically, kind of, I'm a product of the Reformation, of course, I'm Protestant, so I'm going to be influenced by the fact that many people think that the the quintessential Paul is Galatians and Romans and maybe some First Corinthians. Well, when you look at those books and you bring that to Philippians, you can skew what's going on. So that's one piece of it. That's fascinating. And then also, I was, I've been really helped in my own training to think about um, uh, rhetoric, ancient rhetoric, not in terms of necessarily the very particular categories of different kinds of rhetoric, but the three kind of main ways that rhetoric happens, logos, ethos, pathos, and have stumbled across a little something David De Silva did in Galatians, where he kind of sketches through an argument looking at those pieces. So we often think of logos, the argument is kind of the main thing Paul's up to, but ethos is how Paul uses his own persona. And relationship kind of draws on that. In First Corinthians, he's got to kind of, I think, be a little more authoritative. I mean, he tries to bring his authority and say, hey, listen to me, <laughs> or something like that. In Philippians, it just, it works because they have a relationship that seems warm and rich. And I have you in my heart, or you have me in your heart, verse 7 and of chapter 1. And so you have this warm relationship he can kind of utilize, not in a, I'm going to use my relationship way, but just in the way we all draw on relationship in communication. So that's ethos. And pathos is how we tap into the emotions of our hearer or reader. So I'm looking in each section um, of the commentary, I look, I take about a paragraph and talk about ethos, pathos, logos in that section of the letter. And I'm really excited about that. And my students have confirmed, I have students this semester reading my commentary and reading Philippians and working on the text in an elective. And a few of them have noted, this is, a, this is really helpful to augment my way of thinking what Paul is doing. And it's very simple. I mean, it's not, it's not like profoundly technical. It's just paying attention to more than just what 
words argue, but instead kind of how communication happens on a emotive personal level, which fits really well in Philippians. So Oh yeah, it, it absolutely does. That sounds fantastic. And as you're talking, I keep thinking of chapter three of Philippians, mm. you know, mm -hmm. where Paul gets autobiographical. Um ethos all over the place, right? Yeah, yeah. And this has been a touchstone for a number of well, people who talk about law and grace in Paul mm -hmm. and, and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, you shared with me a little bit from this, um, from this section of your uh, commentary draft. I'd like to read two sentences and, and uh, have you unpack them a little bit for us. Okay. You, he, you're referencing the first couple of ch uh, verses in chapter three that where Paul talks about his past and then also uh, he wants to know Christ you know, in the power of that, of his resurrection. And you mentioned this pattern, um, and you're talking about power and privilege, where he considers everything rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. This pattern is suggestive for each of us who hold advantages and privilege, whether ethnic or religious in our own contexts. And we would do well to note that such privilege is often most hidden to those who are its beneficiaries. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, and so I'll back up and just say this is in my theology section where I'm reflecting on um, Paul drawing on his, in this case, ethnic pri privilege, Jewish ethnic privilege within the community of faith. Judaism didn't necessarily have, it might have some privileges in the wider ancient world, and you can talk about those things. But anyway, it, it's not you know uniformly privileged. Um, and I note that in um, Romans, there's sort of an inversion that happens where Gentile privilege seems to be on the front burner for Paul. And he talks about you Gentiles don't presume. And so there, there's kind of this moving reality, it feels like in the first century church related to who has most privilege, Jew or Gentile. So as I, I think about in Philippians, Paul's really drawing on his, his example, his own example of privilege, and then um, saying something about it. So I wanted to be really careful and clear that um, if people are experiencing a lack of privilege or disadvantage, the the message isn't now forget about your your ethnic or religious context. You know, just ignore it because that that is, I think, a really dangerous message to those who are sitting in a place of lack of privilege. But Paul is giving an example of somebody who's sitting with some privilege, especially in, in immediate church context, and says, "Here's what I do in relationship to that." So in that context, um, how do we and I would put myself white privilege in that context today, uh, white privilege, and um, and then say, what is it that I need to pay attention to in relationship to privilege to basically move to a place where I'm um, em empowering or standing alongside um, those who have less privilege? And that second sentence you read, it'd be helpful to note that privilege is often most hidden to those of us who have it. I notice I, I've you know worked for a long time as a woman in biblical studies, which is not the majority gender in biblical studies. Lynn's like shaking her, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I'm and and I, nobody has to tell me where those things um, percolate or where those things kind of come out. I, I know when I'm sitting on the other side of privilege in that context. But as a white person, I don't know when I'm exerting privilege sometimes or receiving it. So sometimes when a privilege is taken away or there's some sort of evening of a playing field, it feels like, wait, somebody's taking away what's mine. You know, the rights thing comes way up into the conversation. So 
I have to presume that my white privilege is most hidden to me. It's much less hidden to any of my friends or other people, maybe that I don't know, who um, are people of color, you know, and 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 have had to struggle under um, um, uh, with a lack of privilege and often with some very oppressive kinds of context. So, I found this passage really interesting for me to think about. Not to say here, all of you should just do exactly what Paul does, but as a white person, I think I need to wrestle with what Paul is offering here, which is. Um, how do I not capitalize on my privilege and instead do something quite different in relationship to it uh, and, and view what Christ has done as something that sort of relativizes um, the ways I think about privilege? Because so much of the language in this, this passage is not about Paul, Paul talking about um, a change of situation, though I think part of that is there. It's about how he considers Christ to be everything because Christ is everything for him. You know, he considers, he changes his point of view or his mindset, which of course, according to Fee and others, is much bigger than just a way of thinking. The mindset shifts, the point of exploration shifts. And then we have a whole different way of looking at these issues. Right. And I think in the past, that's so excellent. Um, in the past, we've looked at this passage as um, maybe being anti-law, um, mm -hmm. and we might even say, you know, uh, anti-Jew, pro-Christian, or, you know, kind of from a doctrinal standpoint only, maybe looking at it. And what you're drawing on here is how is Paul reflecting on his identity piece and uh, being in Christ? Um, Which has a social, significant social ethnic dimension it's not just, there's nothing just religious about this. It's all very intertwined. Yeah. And that's what makes it so fascinating and also tricky to kind of un unravel or um, kind of unpack layers. So, yes, in chapter two in Philippians, then Paul has that beautiful hymn, Christ. Mm, and I'd, yes. I'd love to hear your reflections on that. And as a Matthew scholar, as you're reading this hymn, what did, did any thoughts about the gospel, uh, gospel of Matthew's presentation of Jesus Christ uh, come to the surface for you? Yes. Oh, I, I fell in love all over again with two, especially six through eight, the start of the poem, you know, have this mindset, which is yours in Christ Jesus, um, verse five. And then six, we have the sort of the downward mobility as Eastman and others refer to it. Of Jesus, and it's very poetic. I mean, it's a poem. I mean, whether it's a pre-existing hymn or I call it the Christ poem, just so we don't have to import sort of assumptions of that. Paul uses it. It's Paul because I mean, Paul's used it, maybe adapted it, um, and it's just it's gorgeous. And I used you a lot for the structure piece for the different options. It's like, oh, this is really helpful. And then I went back to Jeremias. Um, to, to hear what he had to say, because he, he, you know, he gives a very sort of pronounced structure to it. Um, I was really helped by thinking about it as poetry. I think that just hermeneutically shifts how we look at any particular word and how words are used in poetry is a little different than in prose in terms of piling up of synonyms, which is exactly the, the problem in two, six through eight, way too many synonyms. Um, and 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 a push for an exactness when it's poetry, and like that just really helped me to think this is poetry. 
this is a song or a hymn or a poem. Um, so this, this descent of Christ to that lowest place, the place of a slave, I think that I, I hear that as language of slave doulos there, it can be translated servant, and it could have the rich Isaiah 53 echoes. I, I hear it more about slavery in the first century world from you know top to bottom, basically status-wise. I kind of follow Hellerman and others that the status drop is huge. And that, of course, reminds me of Matthew 20, 20, 20 through 28 and other places where Jesus could have come to be served, but he comes to serve, Matthew 20, 28. So I did hear a lot of resonance. And I just walked through this passage with some students in a hermeneutics class uh, doing a intensive remotely, you know, so Zoom. And we were walking through Philippians 2, 1 through 11 just as practice, but of course we're in this amazing text. So, and one of the women who, they had done an assignment on Matthew 20, 20 through 28. They're like, is this just the New Testament or are you just giving us all the passages that are about, you know, she's like this theme of status reversal and and uh, turning things on its head. This just feels, is this the New Testament? I said, I think it is the New Testament, but yes, I am also giving you some of my favorite places to think about Jesus doing not what you'd expect the Messiah to do and not what you'd expect the divine to do. So um, yeah, very powerful. So yes, Matthew resonance was all over the place. And I do in my commentary once in a while cite my Matthean work just as a, you know, point of thematic connection. Yeah. Yeah, you know, people have said uh, Paul invented Christianity, and I, I don't think that's uh, that's the case. Um, but the but he carries the gospel, and Jesus is the gospel. Maybe yes. kind of a way yeah. to uh, to say it. And um, how do you feel that your reading of Paul has been enriched because you've read the gospel, and the mm. go- works so much in the Gospel of Matthew? Um, do you think there are things you pick up that maybe someone like myself who is not written in the Gospels uh, might might miss, but but you're alert to it? Um, I, I do think the propensity here to the Gospel, uh, you know, the, 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 not the Gospels, but, you know, the, not the Gospel of Matthew, but the Gospel, the good news, as the whole of Jesus's life. You know, it's a little harder to find that in Paul, you know, and I actually pick up on that a little bit and point to a few places where we hear Paul, you know, he wants to focus for the gospel on the the, the death, resurrection, faithfulness, death, resurrection, um, and exaltation, lordship of Jesus. Faithfulness is a quick way of saying his life, I think, in some ways. Um uh, but I, I I tend to fill that in a little bit more. I mean, not sort of with actual like um events but but i but i think the gospel paul's use of the gospel has a, at least an implicit sense of his life mattered so i probably press into that a little bit more um i also think because i've in the gospel of matthew i'm so helped by jewish scholars like amy jill levine uh and others mark nanos now writes in, in philippians so i've been enjoying hearing um jewish scholars reading the new testament because i brought in some of that sensibility of i want to be really careful that i don't quickly misread Judaism, misalign, you know, misalign what Paul is doing with the realities of first century Judaism. Um, I brought in that sensibility. So I had the longest section for me in terms of struggling with it was three, one through 11. Close second was two, six through 11, the, the Christ hymn, just because there's so much literature there. I mean, books on one word, morphe, one word, whole book, 
wow, you know. Um, but three, one through eleven, I just needed to, and I, I um, found some uh, one particular conversation partner in, uh, in addition to Mark Nanos, um, Zakali, who just had a, had had a helpful framing of some of the things that were going on in terms of this issue of ethnic um, privilege that Paul raises. But how we hear that without kind of having him just toss off his Judaism doesn't matter. Doesn't you know? It's about a consideration of things in light of the Messiah. So I found his. I just needed to find some conversation partners that were helping me think about that. You know, in a way that I was understanding the text already. But you need. You feel like you need to have a conversation partner or two that kind of help round that out. But also go. Okay, yeah, I'm not crazy. You know. <laughs> um, so it's not like fully novel, whatever I say in three, one through 11, but I just did feel like I needed to, to wrestle with it because of people like AJ Levine and Paula Fredrickson, who I really appreciate as well. So I'm not a Jewish scholar of the new Testament, but I, I just feel like they hold us to some really helpful hermeneutical and historical material or you know, truths, uh, relevant material. So that, that's been really helpful. Yeah. And I think Gospels bequeath that to me, studying the Gospels with those same people. Yes, yes. And knowing the life of Jesus. I love that, how you're saying that's a faithfulness. When Paul talks about Jesus's faithfulness, yes. we, can, we can have that whole picture in there. I, I love that. Um, you mentioned hermeneutics yet again. And I know you've just uh, done a second edition of your scripture as communication, and I've had a chance to look at a draft of that. It's fantastic. Uh, you made a few uh, changes. I didn't know how you'd be able to make it better, uh, but oh, well, you made a few changes so that, that uh, managed to improve it uh, e even more. Um, what were some of those uh, changes that mm -hmm. you made, and um, wh why did you decide to, uh, to do them? Um, so a, a few were in response to what I'd heard from folks. Um, uh, when Mark Strauss, who's a colleague of mine, who's taught the book more than I have probably in terms of the number of hermeneutics classes he's taught at Bethel Seminary. And he just, uh, first six chapters particularly that are more theoretical, he just gave me some helpful page by page. I don't understand this, so my students aren't understanding it. You know, those kind of moments like, thank you, Mark. I mean, it's not, and he didn't understand it wasn't because he doesn't have a, I mean, he understands everything. I mean, so it's, it was about my ability to communicate. So I just clarified some stuff, especially in the theoretical and a chart in chapter three that or it was chapter two that made no difference to anybody, including to myself after I created it and got rid of it, you know, so just really cleaned up some of the theoretical, made it clearer, put in more examples, whether from scripture or from just normal communicative kinds of examples. Um, and that leads me to another piece of input. I'm a New Testament scholar, so I leaned on New Testament more than Old Testament. And I thought I did a pretty good job bringing in Old Testament examples because it's meant to be a biblical hermeneutics book. But that was one of the pieces of feedback. So I have, ex I have some extended examples in the Old Testament. I did more of than any time I added examples, I just did Old Testament. And so then I was relying on some of my Old Testament colleagues to do some helpful checking. Peter Vogt, who's our dean at present, does this sound okay? You know, I would look at commentaries, of course, but it's always nice to have a real person say, yeah, that's not crazy. Um, and then I think really importantly, important to me going into the project was to say, I was very aware in 2005 when I was writing 2005, six, 
that I was reading in hermeneutics almost all white men, just because that's who was setting the conversation. And wonderful people like Jen Zimmerman, Anthony Thistleton, Kevin Van Hooser, Joel Green, um, uh, Craig Bartholomew, and you know others, other folks. And I was trying to, as much as possible, listen to other voices even then. It's more possible now to do that. So a few people who have written in hermeneutics, Elizabeth Maburu on African hermeneutics from 2019, Issa Macaulay, 2020, I got that like um, three weeks before the revision was due, his book on reading while black, that's just fabulous, and worked its way in, probably not as much as it ought to have, but as much as I could at that stage in the writing process, in revision process. Dennis Edwards on his little book on what is the Bible. Um, and um, and then heightening also voices, like I used A.J. Levine, and make sure to kind of keep on bringing in voices from other perspectives, um, Jewish New Testament scholar, Jewish New Testament scholars. Um, then also pointing readers to some of the resources that have developed, like the Africa Bible Commentary, the South Asia Bible Commentary, trying to draw on those and point people to their more, more resourced in hearing voices that I haven't been centered. So um, that felt really good. And I'm sure I could have done more. I also feel like I, I you know, as you do a revision, you have to decide if you're going to do how deep of a revision you're going to do. And some parts were deeper than others. And um, yeah, it it feels good. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, ah, that was kind of a good project. It's my first doing anything second edition. So when you read yourself again, you want to go and hide sometimes. Yeah, that wasn't bad. (laughs) Really colloquial, but not bad. But you know, I and I intentionally did it more colloquially. That well, and um, it's it's fabulous. I hope our listeners take a look at it. It's very accessible. It's very accessible for a theoretical. You know, and part of it's theoretical, part of it's practical, but it is meant to be accessible. That's right. You don't have to be a scholar or even someone in college or seminary to understand it. You're, you write with such great clarity and your examples are, are so helpful. So it's, it's really a book for anyone who wants to read scripture better. It's, mm-hmm. it's terrific. As we, um, as we finish up, I wondered um, if uh, Serene uh, Musselman, whose voice you heard in the opening, uh, who is an MA in New Testament student here at Northern Seminary, is a connections pastor and is a podcast guru, um, or at least becoming one because she's uh, (laughs) uh, helping us make this. I wondered if, Serena, was there anything that caught your attention and you have a question for uh, Janine? Sure, yeah. I think um, as Janine was uh, sharing, you know, just that perspective of coming into uh, a piece of scripture and looking at the larger picture. Sometimes in my experience in ministry, I'm talking with people who may be encountering scripture for the first time, and you're always trying to point them to a good starting place while knowing that there there's a bigger picture out there that they may not fully grasp yet. So uh, just uh, maybe some insight as you've been working through uh, Philippians and kind of connecting it with this hermeneutics conversation that the two of you have been having 
uh, any insight you might have for someone, uh, for those of us in pastoral ministry, maybe, that are pointing people towards the scriptures, they're encountering it, experiencing the voice of uh, these different authors coming through in the work, um, maybe just any insight that you might have for us. Yeah, I mean, if you're coming to Philippians, just reading the whole through any number of times, you know, the the whole picture. Um, I was really benefited in my university Christian fellowship days by doing kind of a manuscript manuscript study on Philippians. So we were just encouraged to read it, and um, rather than stopping at chapter one or chapter, you know, and if, if each, we figured out together as a group in my class that I was teaching that stopping at end of chapter one gets you right in the middle of a section, right? 127 through 24. So keeping on reading, um, reading in a couple different translations is always helpful because um, you can start to see some of the places where there is significant difference, you know, maybe it's a word or a phrase. Um, sometimes difference is more cosmetic and synonyms are used. And But, you know, it's starting to, to see where there are places that are different. There are differences and then going to get a good commentary like Lynn Coick's. I think having kind of an accessible commentary and the story of God commentary is such a wonderful tool. Um, and that's the Lynn wrote the Philippians commentary in that series. Have that with you as you're reading scripture. I mean, would start by reading three or four times on your own, start to look at a couple translations, listen to it on tape, or you can go to Bible gateway and hit sound and they'll, somebody will speak it to you. Um, it just can be helpful to hear the whole big picture and then start to notice some of the detail and get excited about maybe going to a commentary to check some of that. Commentaries aren't the things you read all the way through from beginning to end unless you're really geeky like me when I had First Corinthians by Gordon Fee on my nightstand when I was teaching through it. Um, it's really more about helping you hear some of the parts that are more confusing and then read somebody on it. Oh, and then you might find you want to go check someone else out like Mark Marcus Bachmule or, you know, Hawthorne. I mean, what's so exciting for me? So the Tyndale series, the first commentary I ever bought was the Philippians commentary by Ralph Martin in the Tyndale series. Little, I can always hear somewhere. I don't know. But anyway, your readers won't be able to see it. So, um, and I had that when I was working through Philippians as a small group leader and studying it ahead of time. And now I'm sort of, I'm re not replacing, but I'm, you know, the, another edition. So that's just kind of amazing. That that floors me because I loved that little commentary by Ralph Martin that was so helpful and insightful. So find those conversation partners who can help you hear the text in fresh ways and see things you're not seeing because we can never see everything. That's very helpful. Thanks, Janine. Oh, and boy, this half hour has just sped by. I can't believe it, Janine. Thank you so much for just sharing with us your insights. I've learned a ton and I'm sure our listeners have as well. And we'll have to have you back and, uh, love that. and hear about uh, once the Philippians commentary is out and what else you're, you're working on. So thank I you again so that. much. It's been great to be here. Thanks. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for today's episode, a conversation between Dr. Lynn Kohick and Dr. Janine K. Brown. We hope that you have enjoyed our time together. Be sure to tune back in with us again next week. Alabaster Jar is a weekly conversation. So we look at uh, issues impacting women at the intersections of faith, theology, and ministry. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.